0: Chapter eight of the Imperialist by Sarah Jeanette Duncan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. The suggestion that the Reverend Hugh Finlay preached from the pulpit of Knox Church better sermons than its permanent occupant would have been justly considered absurd, and nobody pronounced it the church was full as mrs forsyth observed on these occasions but there were many other ways of accounting for that the murchisons as a family would have been the last to make such an admission the regular attendance might have been as much as anything out of deference to the wishes of the doctor himself who invariably and sternly hoped in his last sermon that no stranger occupying his place would have to preach to empty pews He was thinking, of course, of old Mr. Jamieson, with whom he occasionally exchanged, and whose effect on the attendants had not failed to reach him. With regard to Mr. Jamieson, he was compelled, in the end, to resort to tactics. He omitted to announce the Sunday before that his venerable neighbor would preach, and the congregation, outwitted, had no resource but to sustain the beard wagging old gentleman through seventhly to the finish there came a time when the dear human doctor also omitted to announce that mr finley would preach but for other reasons meanwhile as mrs forsyth said he had no difficulty in conjuring a vacation congregation for his young substitute they came trooping old and young mr and mrs murchison would survey their creditable family rank with a secret compunction remembering its invariable gaps at other times, and then resolutely turned to the praise of God with the reflection that one means to righteousness was as blessed as another. They themselves never missed a Sunday, and as seldom failed to remark on the way back that it was all very interesting, but Mr. Finlay couldn't drive it home like the doctor. There were times, sparse and special occasions, when the doctor himself made one of the congregation then he would lean back luxuriously in the corner of his own pew his wiry little form half lost in the upholstery his arms folded his knees crossed his face all humorous indulgence yes humorous at the announcement of the text a twinkle would lodge in the shrewd gray eyes and a smile but half suppressed would settle about the corners of the flexible mouth he knew what the young fellow there would be at and as the young fellow proceeded his points would be weighed to the accompaniment of the doctor's pendant foot which moved perpetually judiciously while the smile sometimes deepened, sometimes lapsed, since there were moments when any young fellow had to be taken seriously. It was an attitude which only the doctor was privileged to adopt thus outwardly, but in private it was imitated all up and down the aisles, where responsible heads of family sat considering the quality of the manna that was offered them when it fell from the lips of mr finlay the verdict was upon the whole very favorable as long as there was no question of comparison with the doctor there could be indeed very little question of such comparison there was a generation between them and a school and to that you had to add every set and cast of mind and body that can make men different dr drummond in faith and practice moved with precision along formal and implicit lines his orbit was established and his operation within it as unquestionable as the simplest exhibit of nature he took in a wonderful degree the stamp of the teaching of his adolescent period not a line was missing nor a precept nor was the mold defaced by a single wavering tendency of later date Religious doctrine was to him a thing forever accomplished, to be accepted or rejected as a whole. He taught eternal punishment and retribution, reconciling both with divine love and mercy. He liked to defeat the infidel with the crashing question, Who then was the architect of the universe? The celebrated among such persons he pursued to their deathbeds voltaire and rousseau owed their reputation with many persons in knox church to their last moments and to dr drummond he had a triumphant invective which drew the mind from chasms in logic and a tender sense of poetic beauty which drew it when he quoted great lines from everything else he loved the euphony of the old testament his sonorous delivery would lift a passage from isaiah to the height of ritual and every psalm he read was a magnificat whether he would or no the warrior in him was happy among the princes of issachar and the parallels he would find for modern events in the annals of judah and of israel were astounding yet he kept a sharp eye upon the daily paper and his reference to current events would often give his listeners an audacious sense of up-to-dateness which might have been easily discounted by the argument they illustrated the survivors of a convulsion of nature for instance might have learned from his lips the cause and kind of their disaster traced back forcibly to local acquiescence in iniquity And drawn unflinchingly from the text, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The militant history of his church was a passion with him. If ever he had to countenance canonization, he would have led off with Jenny Geddes. A tremendous Presbyterian they called him in the town. To hear him give out a single psalm and sing it with his people would convince anybody of that there was a choir of course but to the front pews at all events, dr drummond's leading was more important than the choir's it was a note of dauntless vigor and it was plain by the regular forward jerk of his surpliced shoulder that his foot was keeping time where the assemblies of the just and congregations are you could not help admiring and you could not help respecting he were compelled by his natural force and his unqualified conviction his tireless energy and his sterling sort it is possible to understand however that after sitting for twenty-five years under direction so unfailing and so uncompromising the congregation of knox church might turn with a moderate curiosity to the spiritual indications of the reverend hugh finley he was a passionate romantic and his body had shot up into a fitting temple for such an inhabitant as his soul he was a great long fellow with a shock of black hair and deep dreams in his eyes his head was what people called a type a type i suppose of the simple motive and the noble intention the detached point of view and the somewhat indifferent attitude to material things, as it may be humanly featured anywhere. His face bore a confusion of ideals. He had the brow of a covenanter and the mouth of Adonis, the flame of religious ardor in his eyes and the composure of perceived philosophy on his lips. He was fettered by an impenetrable shyness it was in the pulpit alone that he could expand and then only upon written lines with hardly a gesture and the most perfunctory glances at conscientious intervals toward his hearers a poor creature indeed in this respect dr drummond thought him dr drummond who wore an untrammelled surplice which filled like an agitated sail in his quick tacks from right to left the man loses half his points said dr drummond i doubt whether he did people followed so closely though sandy maquot was of the general opinion when he said that it would do nobody any harm if mr finley would lift his head oftener from the book Advina murchison thought him the probable antitype of an oxford don she had never seen an oxford don but mr finley wore the characteristics these schoolmen were dressed in by novelists and advina noted with delight the ingenuity of fate in casting such a person into the pulpit of the presbyterian church in a young country she had her perception of comedy in life till Finlay came she had found nothing so interesting with his arrival however other preoccupations fell into their proper places finley indeed it may be confessed at once he and not his message was her engrossment from the beginning the message she took with reverent gentleness but her passionate interest was for the nature upon which it travelled and never for the briefest instant did she confuse these emotions those who write we are told transcribe themselves in spite of themselves it is more true of those who preach for they are also candid by profession and when they are not there is the eye and the voice to help to betray them hugh Finlay, in the pulpit made himself manifest in all the things that matter to advina murchison in the pew and from the pew to the pulpit her love went back with certainty clear in its authority and worshipping the ground of its justification when she bowed her head it was he whom she heard in the language of his invocations his doctrine rode for her on a spirit of wide and sweet philosophy in his contemplation of the deity she saw the man he had those lips at once mobile governed and patient upon which genius chooses oftenest to rest as to this advena's convictions were so private as to be hidden from herself she never admitted that she thought finley had it and in the supreme difficulty of proving anything else we may wisely accept her view but he had something the subtle celt he had horizons lifted lines beyond the common vision and an eye rapt and a heart intrepid and though for a long time he was unconscious of it he must have adventured there with a happier confidence because of her companionship from the first Edvina knew no faltering or fluttering none of the baser nervous betrayals It was all one great delight to her, her discovery and her knowledge and her love for him. It came to her almost in a logical development. It found her grave, calm, and receptive. She had even a private formula of gratitude that the thing which happened to everybody and happened to so many people irrelevantly should arrive with her in such a glorious, defensible, demonstrable sequence toward him it gave her a kind of glad secret advantage he was loved and he was unaware she watched his academic awkwardness in church with the inward tender smile of the eternal habil feminine and when they met she could have laughed and wept over his straitened sentences and his difficult manner knowing how little significant they were with his eyes upon her and his words offered to her intelligence, she found herself treating his shy formality as the convention it was, a kind of make-believe which she would politely and kindly play up to until he should happily forget it and they could enter upon simpler relations. She had to play up to it for a long time, but her love made her wonderfully clever and patient, and of course the day came when she had her reward. Knowing him as she did, she remembered the day and the difference it made. It was toward the end of an afternoon in early April. The discolored snow still lay huddled in the bleaker fence corners. Wide puddles stood along the roadsides, reflecting the twigs and branches of the naked maples. Last year's leaves were thick and wet underfoot, and a soft damp wind was blowing advina was on her way home, and Finlay overtook her. He passed her at first, with a hurried silent lifting of his hat. Then, perhaps, the deserted street gave a suggestion of unfriendliness to his act, or some freshness in her voice stayed him. At all events, he waited and joined her, with a word or two about their going in the same direction, and they walked along together he offered her his companionship but he had nothing to say the silence in which they pursued their way was no doubt to him just the embarrassing condition he usually had to contend with to her it seemed pregnant auspicious it drew something from the low gray lights of the wet spring afternoon and the unbound heart-lifting wind she had a passionate prevision that the steps they took together would lead somehow to freedom they went on in that strange bound way and the day drew away from them till they turned a sudden corner when it lay all along the yellow sky across the river behind a fringe of winter woods stayed in the moment of its retreat on the edge of unvexed landscape They stopped involuntarily to look, and she saw a smile come up from some depth in him. "'Ah, well,' he said, as if to himself, "'it's something to be in a country where the sun still goes down with the thought of the primeval.' "'I think I prefer the sophistication of chimney-pots,' she replied. I've always longed to see a sunset in London, with the fog breaking over Westminster. Then you don't care about them for themselves, sunsets? he asked, with the simplest absence of mind. I never yet could see the sun go down, but I was angry in my heart, she said, and this time he looked at her. How does it go on? he said oh i don't know only those two lines stay with me i feel it that way too it's the seal upon an act of violence isn't it a sunset something taken from us against our will it's a hateful reminder in the midst of our delightful volitions of how arbitrary every condition of life is the conditions of business are always arbitrary life is a business we have to work at ourselves till it is over so much cut off and ended it is he said glancing at the sky again if space is the area of life and time is its opportunity there goes a measure of opportunity i wonder said advina where it goes into the void behind time he suggested smiling straight at her into the texture of the future she answered smiling back we might bring it to bear very intelligently on the future at any rate he returned the world is wrapped in destiny and but revolves to roll it out i don't remember that she said curiously no you couldn't he laughed outright i haven't thought it good enough to publish and it isn't the sort of thing she ventured gaily. you could put in a sermon no it isn't they came to a corner of the street which led to mr finley's boarding-house it stretched narrowly to the north and there was a good deal more snow on each side of it they lingered together for a moment talking seizing the new joy in it which was simply the joy of his sudden liberation with her consciously pushing away the moment of parting and finley's eyes rested once again on the evening sky beyond the river i believe you are right and i am a moralizer he said there is pain over there one thinks a sunset beautiful and impressive but one doesn't look at it long then they separated and he took the road to the north Which was still snowbound, while she went on into the chilly yellow west with the odd sweet illusion that a summer day was dawning. End of chapter eight.